Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 27. In today's episode, the big issue of overdiagnoses in human and veterinary medicine. It's bigger than you think. You'll hear about ringworm, what it really is, and how you can holistically treat it. Lastly, I'm going to discuss a new drug for inappetence in dogs and cats. Now Veterinary Secrets is on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. You can download the Stitcher app and search for Veterinary Secrets. I would definitely appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on my blog at veterinarysecrets.com or slash blog or you can send me an email and that's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. Let's get right into today's podcast and it's about the first topic is about overdiagnoses. Medical experts now agree that as a result of aggressive screening programs, we have an epidemic of cancer overdiagnosis in the United States and Canada. With mammograms finding tiny cancers and PSA tests discovering unpalpable prostate cancers, we're now unearthing some cancers far too early for our own good. So what does it mean to overdiagnose cancer? According to a cancer epidemiologist, Ruth Atsani, overdiagnosis occurs when screening tests detect a tumor that would not have presented clinically in the absence of screening. Uh, They give the example, if a mammogram reveals a tiny breast cancer in a 103-year-old woman, a cancer that, if left alone, would not grow large enough to cause symptoms, much less death, for at least another decade, that mammogram would probably have overdiagnosed her cancer. If she'd never had that mammogram, she would have lived the rest of her life, you know, maybe 104 or 107, blissfully unaware that a small breast cancer was growing inside her body. So what are some examples where there's too many diagnostics and they're leading to problems with our animals. A number of different things, and I've got seven that I've highlighted. One, routine blood work. Um, for example, now there's this trend for you know having these routine blood screening just to check and see if there's something underlying going on with your dog or cat. An example I'm giving, it could show that you might have elevated levels of an enzyme called ALP or ALKFOS. This is produced from the liver, but it's also produced from the intestinal tract. It's produced from bone, but it's just as possible possible that a veterinarian would then say to you, well, there could be underlying liver disease, we've got to do additional diagnostics, perhaps screening tests, perhaps biopsies, when in reality it could very well mean this is not a serious thing at all. Another example, complete body x-rays. There is a bit of a trend for, you know, getting these middle-aged oral animals. X-ray everything, let's check for some. Preventive chest x-rays. I mean, this still is regularly being advised, especially with these older animals. The idea is that we're going to look and see is the heart starting to get enlarged. We need to be concerned. My point that I'm trying to make here is if you've got a dog or cat, they don't have clinical signs. There's such a big gray area with these, first of all, with these diagnostic texts being interpreted. You know, the skill of the veterinarian looking at that x-ray. And you could send off those x-rays, you know, to a couple different specialists. You may get two different diagnoses. It really depends on the quality of the x-ray machine itself and what they're looking at, the light, and how they interpret what they're seeing on the, on those slides. Another example, ultrasounds, which are increasingly being advised for you know preventive mass detection. So is the spleen just enlarged because that's just the normal size of your dog's spleen or is it like a significant finding? In most cases it probably isn't a significant finding, especially if you're dealing once again with an animal that has no underlying clinical signs. Pre-surgical blood work. Another big issue, cause of contention. You know, we've got these young, healthy 
clinically sound animals is there a need for pre-surgical blood work and if it happens once again you know is an, a slight elevation in, in liver enzyme going to be picked up and does it mean further diagnostics when in reality that could be just even normal um, for your dog or cat because we also know that one every 20 animals don't fall within those normal ranges maybe your your cat's red cell count is slightly below what we consider normal is your cat anemic nope that's just his normal red cell count for him but we'd never know that and that leads to that problem of additional diagnosis diagnostic tests. Another example, you know, they're talking about regular urinalysis, screen for things such as diabetes. You know, if you've got a healthy animal not at risk for diabetes, you know, they're not overweight, they're not showing clinical signs, pretty unlikely they've got diabetes. Is that test needed? And is it possible then that, you know, that test is done, someone sees, do they see bacteria in the urine and they prescribe your dog or cat with antibiotics when in reality, you know, that could be an error of diagnosing within the clinic itself as opposed to what's going on with your animal. So there's a whole bunch of variables there. Last one I pointed out here is screening tests for thyroid disease, especially hypothyroid. Inevitably, these hormone assays aren't always that specific. They can lead to misdiagnoses. We know underlying disease. So if you've got a dog or cat that is a dog in particular that is sick and we screen them for hypothyroid, you might have artificially low levels of T4. When in reality, in reality, they are not hypothyroid, but then that could lead to diagnoses of hypothyroidism and your animals on you know, medication that it didn't need to be on. So too many tests. I mean, they really can be hazardous both to your health and your pet's health. You know, first of all, what I referenced earlier, because of the way normal values are determined, um, there's a good chance that one every 20 tests will give an abnormal result when that test is not really abnormal. This whole issue is the bell curve. We know that there's a bigger range than we're appreciating. And just because your, your dog or your cat falls at one end or the other, for instance, of maybe it's like thyroid levels or maybe for instance, it's uh, the red cell count. Are they anemic or not? They could, that could be completely normal for your animal. False positives results become increasingly likely when a disease is rare, when the patient's history and clinical signs, physical exam, don't already point to that diagnosis. It's a big, big point. I mean, you've, you've got to back it up before you're going to go down that rabbit hole. You have like history, clinical signs, physical exam. Does that point towards that disease? If not, don't go down it. Following up on false positive tests can be a wild goose chase with more unnecessary tests procedures. There's no way for us to tell whether a suspicious shadow on an x-ray represents a deadly disease or just a harmful artifact. Imaging procedures and other tests frequently identify things that are there that aren't clinical. Abnormal findings that are just mere curiosities and they have no impact on the patient's health other other than to cause sometimes unnecessary worry. Yes, you may have an enlarged pituitary gland, Maybe it's a pituitary adenoma. Does it, are you have any clinical signs from that? Quite likely not. Is it ever going to affect you as far as your the, the length of life you're going to live? Cause any clinical signs? Probably not. So if you don't have signs related to that, it's just like a test that's even caused unnecessary worry. Some tests involve harmful, potentially harmful radiation, and even the, just the simple act of drawing blood can cause pain, bruising, and a risk of infection. Even minor risk not justified if the likelihood of benefit is too low. Then there's lab errors, machine, machine malfunctions, misreading results, mixing up samples, recording and tra- transcription errors. You know, overdiagnosis is leading to unnecessary tests. And then these tests cost money, sometimes a lot of money. It's not healthy for your own wallet or just society in general. So the big conclusion to draw from this is every year, you know, there's more and more tests being available for doctors, for veterinarians to order. You really have to have, in my opinion, 
you know, veterinarians and doctors should not be ordering any of them without really good reason. You know, it really needs to be guided by good judgment. You know, you as a client, as a patient, you should not be hesitant to question your veterinarian, question your doctor, if you don't understand why a test is being done or what difference the results will, what are they going to make at all. Let's get on to the second part of today's podcast. It's on ringworm. So what is it? What are the signs? Um, typically, we're, most time we're seeing it in cats. Your pet has areas of hair loss that are not itchy. Generally, there are circular, crusty scabs that are spreading. You know, it's possible that you've gone into your veterinary clinic and they've diagnosed your cat or your dog with ringworm. Ringworm itself is not a worm. It's a fungus that lives in the hair fall. It's often a cause of hair loss in young cats and pets with suppressed immune systems. It's highly contagious both to pets and people. So if you suspect it, it's important that you treat your pet before you get this. You don't want to get ringworm itself. But understanding that it's a fungus living in the hair follicles. So if you... Initially, especially if you've got a young cat, you've got this spreading areas of hair loss, you can get it diagnosed. You can go into your veterinarian, uh, they can shine on a thing called a woods lamp, and especially if they wait, they put your cat in a dark room, they let this light heat up, pretty good chance you can get a diagnosis from that. Um, and then they can also, you know, try to grow that, it's called a fungal culture, and confirm it. But most of the time, you can just even diagnose it with a woods lamp, so it's pretty quick diagnosis. But then what else can you do about it? So conventionally, you're dealing with a couple different oral medical medications but but there are some alternative options first barber time you want to trim the hair around the affected area it's going to slow the spread of the the ringworm and allow topical medication to be more effective there's some topical antiseptic scrubs chlorhexidine also it's sold under the brand name hibitane it's a very effective topical antiseptic useful in cleaning the affected area you can purchase it at just about any pharmacy washing the area twice daily vinegar I mean, it's a really, really important holistic remedy for a number of different things, you know, ear infections, for instance, but also for these fungal infections. It really is an effective antifungal treatment. You can wipe the affected area twice daily. Some holistic practitioners are finding that apple cider vinegar is more effective, but you can use it similar to regular vinegar. You got to make sure that you're looking at the environment. Don't forget to clean the area of your house that's going to harbor the spores and reinfect your pet. You want to wipe counters and floors with bleach. Vacuum the house well. Bleach your pet's bedding. There's a medication called program and if your cat is considered a carrier as generalized ringworm you can ask your veterinarian about using it and it's much less toxic than this older medication called griseofulvin or fulvicin. The last big thing I wanted to say with ringworm itself, um, actually there's a couple more remedies I'm going to discuss but in terms of it can be really difficult to treat um, and, and there are some cats that are going to need the conventional medication but just be really cautious that you're given the lowest effective dose and it's a, it's a pill that needs to be given with food. There's a mushroom called reishi mushrooms Ringworm often occurs in pets with depressed immune systems. These mushrooms are an effective stimulant. The dose is one drop per pound of body weight twice daily of the tincture. Um, a few different herbs I want to mention, one called neem. This is a herb called Arachidaca indica with antifungal and antiseptic qualities. The tincture can be applied topically twice daily to speed up healing. Calendula and aloe vera are the two herbs that are both effective at giving symptomatic relief to the inflamed skin. You can use either the tincture or cream, applying it twice daily. Ginseng. It's another popular immune stimulant. The dose is 30 milligrams per pound of the dried herb twice daily, or one drop per pound twice daily of the tincture. And last, there's a homeopathic called pulsatilla. It's effective in cases of immunosuppression, which is what we're often dealing with when we have a cat that has ringworm. The dose is 130C tablet per 10 to 20 pounds, given every four to six hours um, for two to three days short term, and you'd be looking at giving in that one tablet a day, sort of long term. The one 
thing to say is that offering ringworm is a long takes a long time to get rid of it before your body can fully clear it you'd be looking at three months so you would be looking at long-term treatment regardless really making sure your cat isn't you know reinfected so you've cleaned the house really well and you're really staying on top of the treatment whether you're giving orally or whether you're giving something topically to really make sure that we suppress so that thing, that ringworm itself that fungus can't spread into the rest, rest of your pet's body the last section of, of the podcast was just a article that came out on dvm 360 about some new solutions for inappetence in the next couple of years there can be some new tools available to address inappetence in both dogs and cats it's a real big issue you've got a dog or a cat that won't eat like what else can you give them we don't have many conventional options this new product which is being developed by a pet therapeutics company called Aritana, is an oral delivery of capromelin a small molecule that mim- mimics garolin the naturally occurring hormone that stimulates appetite, increases body weight, and increases serum growth hormone levels. They've announced, they say they've recently done a study from the pivotal field effectiveness study of this drug called capromelin in dogs. And company reps are saying they continue to anticipate approval of the product for mid-2016. So come on up pretty, pretty quick. In July 2015, they announced positive results in a pilot field study using it in cats. And they expect FDA approval in 2018. Some other drugs that are currently used right now um, conventionally diazepam or oxazepam in cats the benzodiazepines um, so diazepam is valium the benzodiazepines bind to GABA receptors enhance the sensory characteristics of food such as taste because the food becomes more palatable they can produce a voracious increase in food consumption but the drugs themselves don't directly modulate hunger cyproheptadine in cats is an antihistamine with serotonin receptor antagonist activity that's one that I definitely used in practice. So what it does, it releases endogenous opiates, which stimulate appetite, but the serotonin inhibits the release. So by blocking serotonin, what it's done is blocking the serotonin to be produced. These endogenous opiates can then work. In other words, they can actually make your cat feel hungry. Another appetite stimulant called mirtazapine. It's an antidepressant. In addition to stimulating appetite, it also makes it less likely for your cat to be vomiting or throwing up, or dog throwing up, because that antiemetic effects. There's an old hormonal, old synthetic progestin called uh, megastral acetate. We don't use it very often, um, but it did work as an appetite stimulant. And then some of the more common steroids prednisone or prednisolone in in dogs and cats the glucocorticoids stimulate gluconeogenesis or insulin antagonists and they can actually induce you know your dog or cat to start eating again so there are some additional things that your veterinary may consider but just knowing that there is a new drug coming out which looks promising because it's a real big deal we just can't get your your animals to eat for different reasons especially these cats that have fatty liver if we just get them eating again not go for a prolonged period of inappetence maybe we could avoid it or easily treated so thanks for listening to this edition of uh, veterinary secrets and this podcast if you have any questions or comments on the show feel free to send me an email that's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com or feel free to post a comment on my blog at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog and i'll have the podcast up there and thanks again for listening and i'll talk to you again next week this is dr andrew jones